don't actually think this is about photography. I think this is about a curiosity in the world and the photographic life. Photography is a byproduct. So I think that moving around a lot with my family, traveling around the world, um, that coded me as, as a child to want more of that and I can't get enough of it. I'm happiest you know, being someplace different where every moment is a new piece of information for me. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. All right, we are gonna get started. Uh, I'm Alexander Rose, I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation, and um, I wanna welcome you here. Um, how many people is this their first time at the interval? Nice, welcome, thank you for coming. Um, this series started um, with the idea that we are going to be able to do more intimate talks, obviously, than the, the larger series that we do down now at SF Jazz. Um, but Long Now started with two ideas, and we really only have been explicit about one. Um, we started with this idea of the Long Now, which Brian Eno, one of our founding board members, coined. But actually, he coined it as part of another thing, which he called the Big Here. And it was when he moved when he moved from New York or from London to New York for the first time. He realized when people in New York said here, they meant the two walls that we are between, and when they said now, they meant the five minutes that we are in, not the larger here and the larger now. And so. Chris, uh, not only um, being an amazing person, I know many of you know him personally, but I think he has personally expanded the bigger here for all of us who get to follow him vicariously or uh, actually on some of his trips. And so I welcome Chris to expand our here once again. This is awesome. I love the long now. I love the interval. I love Xander. And I have to say, you know, as I look out uh, on this group, I, I'm, something strikes me. And um, for those of you who follow my work, you know about my portrait series, um, People I Admire. And you know, what's interesting is all of those people are here tonight. Um, so I'm gonna do something unusual, maybe never been done before, <laughs> and that's take a photograph of all of you from here. Okay, Chris Anderson, do your thing, okay. You know, that's a, uh, that's a memory I'm going to treasure. Because to me, memories are the currency of our lives. And this is a talk about what happens when a person becomes obsessed with capturing and sharing those memories. A story that takes place over 10 years, across 50 countries. A story captured in over a million photographs. Settle in, because I'm going to show you every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the long now. <clears throat> My hope is that this story inspires each of you to journey further, geographically, spiritually, but most importantly, as documentarians of your own lives. 
The photographs that matter to me are the ones that transform an ordinary moment into a treasured memory. They record a bit of what makes us unique. And this is a unique moment. And hopefully, create a photograph that endures. This is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But photography has another remarkable property. It can transport us into other lives and other realities. It can create windows into the otherwise unknown. This is a picture I took at the South Pole just a few weeks ago. That's not a lens effect. That's a halo, a parhelion, and a sundog created by ice crystals. So tonight, we're going around the world, compressing 100 days of exploring into each minute. We'll travel from the North Pole to the South, briefly stopping in the mid-latitudes, diving below our oceans and above our skies, but like most journeys, this one is not linear. This is a photo I took in China. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Becoming a photographer was not only the last thing I imagined I'd be, it wasn't even on the list. I grew up on the road, the product of a Greek father and American mother. I lived in so many places, it's hard to keep track. And this is what the new kid in school looks like, shell-shocked. <laughs> yeah, that's quality right there. I was that new kid every few years growing up, that kid who never quite fit in. Always the outsider, always the observer. And this is the first photo I can remember taking. It's Tokyo in 1987. Could be in Asia Grace if I was lucky. Um, I wouldn't pick up a camera again for another decade. The next 20 years were spent trying to make it in the Navy. My call sign was Bart, by the way, like Bart Simpson. <laughs> Maybe you can see why. Yeah, that is actually Bart on my name tag. Good observation. And as an entrepreneur. But along the way, photography became more than a hobby. It blossomed into an obsession, and in 2008, it became my third career and the purpose of my life. This obsession was fueled by the ideas of photographers like Eugene Smith, Albert Watson, and Sam Abel, especially Sam. His approach to photography would eventually be the cornerstone of my philosophy to making images. I'll share a few of those principles tonight with the hope they do more than help you decode my photographs, that you might also find them useful in your own work. First and foremost, to seek soulful moments, not recreate postcards. I call this photograph the crush. It was taken in Cusco, Peru. To compose and wait for that decisive moment. So I have to say, um, after about three hours on this lead in Antarctica, I was really starting to question this principle, but <laughs> it, it worked out. And to make photographs that ask questions rather than answer them. Recognizing the gear doesn't matter. Took me a while to figure this one out, but I'm there today. But details do, a lot. This is obviously Havana. To know when just to be an observer, 
and when to engage. To seek love. Whimsy. This is Kenya. And wonder. But most importantly, to always say yes to adventure. And we've got a lot of adventuring to do tonight, so let's go big. And head 3,600 miles due north to the, nor to the South Pole. I'm sorry, to the North Pole. So if you have a jacket, now might be the time to put it on. I know it's warm in here, but it's about to get cold. Briefly uh, about the word Arctic, you've all heard it before. It literally means near the bear. So in the north, we have bears and no penguins, and the opposite is true in Antarctica. But you already knew that. You notice that the Arctic is essentially water surrounded by land. Antarctica, on the other hand, is a continent surrounded by water. Our journey today will take us to Franz Josef Land, the North Pole, and Svalbard. There are really only a few practical ways to the pole, by helicopter, by ship, by submarine, and if you go by boat, there's only one boat that can do it. It's the world's most powerful ship, the nuclear icebreaker, 50 years of victory. Those aerial shots were done the old-fashioned way, sorry, Chris Anderson, uh, uh, above the ship in a Russian helicopter. It was really great fun, but I have to say a little too much duct tape for my liking. <laughs> for real. From Murmansk, it's a fascinating four-day journey to the pole. Empty and inhospitable, except for the toughest creatures. Those adapted for life on the ice. I can tell you they scatter when they see a huge nuclear icebreaker heading for them. <laughs> Unless you're the king of the Arctic. Then the ship's just another possible meal, and one they can smell from miles off. And they approach without fear. In fact, there were stories about these bears coming right to the ship, and pounding on the side of the ship. Now that's a pretty brave apex predator. The Arctic is a place of surreal beauty. That's Franz Josef Land. And unforgettable colors. As you pass 85 degrees north, the ice grows thicker and thicker, as you might expect, until it becomes a solid sheet. And really, the only way you know you're at the pole is because your GPS says 90 degrees. I know some of you sticklers out there see that the GPS doesn't say 90 degrees. It says 89 degrees, 59 minutes. You're right. We're not quite there. This is for you. <laughs> it, it seems straightforward to get 90 degrees on your GPS, but it is, it is not straightforward, I have to say. I was running around the ship trying to get the... <laughs> well, what's at the pole? That's a question I always had. Well, the answer is nothing. Nothing's at the pole. Nothing but ice and pressure ridges until someone walks out with a flag and people get weird. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting to see what people do when they get to the pole. There's a lot of selfies. The North Pole is difficult and expensive to reach, but not far away. At 80 degrees is an equally beautiful and surprisingly accessible place, and a place I know many of you know, because you've been there. And that's Svalbard. 
Here's Svalbard's most well-known feature. There's a picture of it in the back there, the Global Seed Vault. I'd seen countless pictures of this doomsday vault located at the ends of the Earth. You've probably seen those photos. But here's a less dystopian view. Just in front of this vault, and in a photo you never see, is a commercial air terminal. Yep, this uh, remote high Arctic community has regular SAS service from Europe. Relatively speaking, it's a piece of cake to reach. Martha Stewart was just there like three weeks ago. Did anyone go on that trip? Okay. <laughs> anyway. This is downtown Longyearbyen, really the only city in Svalbard. An absolutely stunning place, especially by boat. Take a moment to imagine what it might be like to be there, experiencing the deep calm of this vast and lonely place. I'll share a few images without comment. This is a site I won't soon forget. But the Arctic is also a place teeming with life. Who doesn't like the puffin? Reindeer. This is a little too close for comfort. <laughs> they look friendly, but they're not that friendly. The reindeer are very friendly. So cute. Yet humans often struggle to survive. and sometimes leave altogether. This is the abandoned Soviet mining colony of Pyramiden, once a vibrant community filled with miners and their families, now left to ruin. And you see that bust in the center. Do you know who that is? It's Lenin. One of the eeriest places on Earth. Left as it was after the fall of the Soviet Union, with buildings overflowing with artifacts. A pool with no water. A court with no players. Movie projector with no film. Well, I guess there is film, but it'd be hard to use. My great regret in this photograph, uh, and even being there, was not looking to see what the film was. Could have picked it up and... And the only place on earth where plants look worse than they do in my apartment. 
not watered since the 1990s. <laughs> Still holds all the leaves, it's incredible. Being a bit bipolar in my interests, I, feel, I do feel obliged to share a few moments from the places in between. That's Bora Bodor in the photograph. There are so many postcard images to take, like the sunset in Bagan, Midnight in Mongolia. Or sunrise in Patagonia. Nice photographs. But I much prefer images that tell stories. Even simple images like this conversation in Kalau, Myanmar. Images that convey feeling. Those places are everywhere if you know how to look. Humans often transform the otherwise mundane into the fascinating. This is Moscow, but you could take the same image in New York or San Francisco. People always seem to look the same on public transportation, I don't know. And sometimes you get both, humans in extraordinary environments, like this photograph of cosmonauts heading to their rocket in Baikonur. Anyone can shoot liftoff. But it's this next moment that's way more interesting to me. This is cosmonaut Maxim Suryev saying goodbye to his family prior to launch. These are the moments I want to remember and preserve. Otherwise stolen forever by time. Like the schoolboy in Kenya. This brave girl in Mongolia. Nomadic sisters in Sudan. Heartfelt moments of serenity. Like the sweet girl sitting gracefully in the streets of Jodhpur. A dancer taking a break in Havana. for this boy and his makeshift umbrella in the Congo. These me memories matter more than we may know. And like a kind of alchemy, they become more and more meaningful each day. Like this recent portrait of my friend Norm Larson. Sadly, Norm passed away in February. This is one of the last photos ever taken of him. Some photographic journeys are meditative, like Morning Cora in Lhasa, Tibet. Or late afternoons in Manhattan. This is the best thing I ever got out of, out of a VC's office, is this photograph. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, others are just the opposite. A sweet moment in Esperance, a particularly rough area in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Just a second about this photograph. Um, I was very noticeable in this town of 50,000 people. 
And um, it's not clear to me that it was altogether safe, but I really had some very, very special moments with these people. And I, I felt a real connection. Sometimes it's the animals we remember, like this llama in Cusco, or is it a Wanaco? I can never get them straight. An argument for reincarnation, right? I mean, that's animal saying something. Or this eagle in Mongolia. Or even the world's saddest dog, Mr. Newman. But not everyone's an enthusiastic subject. These kids can't get away from me fast enough. Even the dog is running. This is in Myanmar. But mostly, people want to engage. Occasionally with surprising results. Monklets in Bhutan. Can anyone decode these symbols? I, I don't know what they're communicating to me, but I was surprised that they did this. Sometimes you never really meet your subjects, just capturing a frame in the movie of their lives. I'll forever wonder about the narrative of this photograph made in Rajasthan. He looks like he's asking for something. Or about the life of this Berber in Morocco. In many places in the world, the old ways remain. Two young women starting their day in the fields of Mandalay. The new world is crowding out the old, and these juxtapositions are endlessly fascinating. Like this BMW competing with the food vendor for space in Old Yangon. Or a camel walking amidst a concrete jungle in Giza. But these contrasts, even in Instagram destinations like the Great Pyramid of Giza, are what make life interesting for a storyteller. And if you're willing to go off the beaten path, as Kevin and I were just saying, some truly remarkable places await, like these Nubian pyramids in Sudan. As you can tell by now, I'm fascinated with the faraway, especially deserts. Those both incredibly far away, like the Gobi, and those a bit nearer. Not the Gobi. But my favorite desert of all is the crystal desert of Antarctica. An incredibly dry continent covered in ice, ice holding 70% of the world's fresh water. And when you think of Antarctica, think big. It's a continent, continent 1.5 times the size of the United States, a huge landmass surrounded by the Southern Ocean. And these places in red are the few of the places we're going to be visiting today. You can see the Antarctic Peninsula, the Ailey Bay Station, Gould Bay on the coast, and in the center of this image is the South Pole. <coughs> Tourism in Antarctica is almost entirely by ship, cruising the continent's closest point to South America, the Antarctic Peninsula. So probably 99.9% .9 of people, this is where they go when they said they go to Antarctica a place of epic scale, 
Even cruise ships look tiny. Where ice comes in countless shapes and colors. And sometimes even with passengers. Those are penguins. Arguably, it's the most magnificent coastline in the world. And a trip I couldn't recommend more highly. But for the truly adventurous, visiting Antarctica's wild and remote interior might be worth considering. It's not easy and almost require, always requires the use of an ice-capable aircraft like a Russian-built IL-76. Here it is landing at Union Glacier's Blue Ice Runway in January. But if you're willing to go, the rewards are significant. This is Mount Rossman, at the base of which is a small tent camp run by a company called ALE, Antarctic, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. It's the logistics hub for trips to Mount Vincent, the tallest peak in Antarctica, the South Pole, and the Emperor Breeding Colony in Gould Bay. It's a five-hour flight from both Punta Arenas in Chile and the South Pole. This was my home for three weeks in January. It's an interesting thing to have the sun never go down. The interior is an immense and empty landscape illuminated by 24 hours of sunlight. As beautiful as it is dangerous. A place of magnificent desolation, utterly devoid of life except for a few remote camps, almost like extraterrestrial outposts. Where humans only survive through extraordinary effort. dependent on a lifeline of food and fuel from civilization. But your proximity to the extraordinary is unmatched. In about three hours by aircraft, you can reach the Emperor Colony at Gould Bay. If you're wondering, that's a DC-3 from the 1940s. The real March of the Penguins. A breeding colony far from shore and away from worrisome predators. You know the story. These are royalty among penguins, and they know it. And their cuteness is only surpassed by their curiosity. They seemed especially interested in those large penguin newcomers. When you approach the colony, the first thing that happens is 10 penguins come right over. And it's not clear what they want, but um, as, as an aside, I remember leaving on my final day here to go back on the airplane, and two penguins followed me all the way back to the airplane. When I stopped, they stopped and just looked at me. And you just really wonder what they're thinking. It was like a Disney film, but for real. If you're exceptionally intrepid, you might head all the way south to the pole. Situated at 9,000 feet, it's one of the most dangerous places on the planet rarely getting warmer than 20 below. And yes, there is indeed a pole at the pole. You've got two choices for accommodations. The Ritz-Carlton, where Will would stay, and the Motel 6. Guess where I stayed? 
Actually, that's Amundsen Scott, South Pole Station, and the ALE base camp. South Pole Camp's a pretty remarkable place. Great food, good tents, and some of the most interesting people on Earth. The bathrooms aren't too bad. That could be a question for later, but bathroom talk is the number one thing people talk about in Antarctica. <laughs> Everything has to leave. So you could imagine people are taking great care. Just hanging around the camp, you might meet people like Robert Swan, the first person to walk to both poles. Yasu Igita, having just arrived at the pole after skiing 50 days alone and unsupported. I can assure you he couldn't be happier to be done. <laughs> I, I was the first person to see him, and I, it was just an incredible moment. There's lots to see at the pole. This is the Dark Sector Astronomy Facility. It's really like an alien film. If you ask me, it's the perfect set for Stranger Things Season 3. This is what happens if you go out without sunscreen. <laughs> the Crystal Desert is my favorite place on Earth. And to leave is always a bittersweet moment. This is my seventh trip, and I'll keep returning as long as I live. Well, tonight we've been from the north to the south, but even more remote and otherworldly places remain like below the waves with leviathans. I had the opportunity to photograph humpbacks in the Dominican Republic Silver Bank for Outside Magazine. Although I love snorkeling, it takes a leap of faith to jump in the water teeming with huge sea creatures. That Moby Dick moment. But soon that anxiety was replaced by an incredible sense of tranquility and calm. I began to feel a real connection with these gentle giants. After a few minutes, the mother humpback brought her calf right to me. And it didn't take long before that baby humpback just started hanging out. Here's Scarlett, yes, we named her, looking me in the eye. And this was taken with a wide-angle lens. This whale is four feet, three feet from me. I often wonder where Scarlet is today, hopefully happy and safe, joyfully playing in the ocean's depths. As I mentioned, photography has taken me to places I never imagined. And our final journey tonight is aboard a U-2 spy plane at the edge of space. Probably my most exciting experience as a photographer. I'm going to take you through a few of the steps that lead up to a takeoff. And flight prep takes a better part of a week. Most of the instruction is around emergency procedures and survival. This is me in the hyperbaric chamber. They're about to simulate explosive decompression. So the cabin altitude of the chamber is going to go from 10,000 feet to 70,000 feet instantaneously, causing unprotected liquids to boil and almost immediate death for anyone unprotected. That's why I'm in a spacesuit. It may look like I'm totally cool with what's about to happen, but I, I'm not. <laughs> the morning of the flight starts with a low-residue breakfast of steak and eggs. Do you guys remember the Apollo breakfast of steak and eggs? Well, 
There's a reason. It's not just because they're manly. It's because they don't want any accidents in their million-dollar spacesuit. You then start pre-breathing pure O2 an hour before the flight. They put you in a treadmill to accelerate the outgassing of nitrogen. A white van with a lounge chair then takes you to the aircraft where the launch crew awaits. The box behind me is providing life support. You can see the oxygen uh, leaking from the, the tank. A really NASA-esque experience. There are many superstitions and rituals in the U2 program. The first is that you touch the nose of the aircraft before flight. I'm not normally into this sort of thing, but I was going to take all the luck I could get that day. You then salute the plane captain and maintenance crew. And finally, you fist bump the pilot assigned to the chase vehicle. Here you see pilot Chris Hanshaw in the chase car moments before takeoff. The U-2 is so difficult to land and take off, they have a Camaro that follows the aircraft giving commands to the pilots. Through the window, notice the red landing gear on the wing. That gear is going to fall off on takeoff, reducing the weight of the aircraft. You might wonder, well, then how do you land the airplane? Well, there's centerline gear, but like a glider, the aircraft tilts over on a titanium wing spar. Here we are on takeoff. It's an incredibly steep climb to altitude, almost vertical. And after a bit more than an hour, I was treated to a black sky and a view of spaceship Earth. One of the most profound things I've ever seen. But of all my U2 shots, this unintentional selfie got the most attention. I'm adjusting my GoPro, which I illegally mounted in the U2. <laughs> look, it's not hard to look cool in a spacesuit. Whoops. But you and I both know the reality. <laughs> right? The nerd. <clears throat> We've come a long way together this evening. I can't thank you enough for being such great traveling companions. And I'm going to lean on T.S. Eliot to take us the rest of the way home. He said, we shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all of our exploring, we'll be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And for us, that's San Francisco with fresh eyes. Where it often takes more than roller skates and a sailor hat to get noticed, <laughs> unless we're paying attention. Notice no one's looking at him. He's just... But if we open our eyes and our heart, beauty and love is everywhere. No plane trip required. I'm hoping this evening leaves you compelled to adventure more deeply, to meet the world head on with love, compassion, and courage, to realize it's never too late to find your calling but most of all, to pursue incredible memories with unbridled determination. So grab your camera and get out there. The world is waiting for you. Thank you.
Chris, thank you so much. That was, I got a chance to view the deck ahead of time, but um, uh, going through it with you is, um, is truly extraordinary. And uh, we're going to have questions. Um, there's going to be a mic going around since we are live casting this. Please um, wait, raise your hand, and the person with the mic will get to you. Um, I'm just going to start off with a few. Um, you know, Chris moved through 200 images in about 30 minutes, and uh, I'm so overwhelmed. Con congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was I was dubious that that could happen, uh, and I'm a little bit curious. I think you know, there's there's not many people that I run into in the Bay Area, especially in the tech scene, that started their life um, in the military or their careers in the military, um, and I'm just wondering how you got there, and then what was the real impetus for getting out? How did those transitions work? Uh, two words, Top Gun. <laughs> for real? Well, a little bit for real. Um, I, I thought I wanted to serve my country, maybe in elected office, and I thought maybe being in the military was a good thing to do. And I was fascinated in it and um, interested in the Cold War, interested in the Soviet Union. Um, and Top Gun came out, and it seemed like a really cool thing to do. And <laughs> I joined the military and flew P3s as a navigator and then worked in the Pentagon, and I had a great time, a 10 out of 10 time. I loved it. And, um, but I worked in the Pentagon and that's an interesting experience. I worked for the chief of the Navy Reserve, but really the head of the Navy. And when I got there, I mean, it's sort of like meeting your boss's boss's boss. You look at them and if you think, well, maybe I don't want to be that person in 30 years, maybe you think there might be something else. And for me, there was something else. And so how did that transition work? Um, well, uh, How did you I, end up in San Francisco, I guess, okay, is the okay. question. It's a fair question. So I was a political, I mean, I love technology, but I was a political science major. And interested in Soviet studies, I had zero interest in business. I never read a business book. I didn't look at business publications. I never opened the Wall Street Journal. And um, I went to the University of Illinois, so I'm working in the Pentagon. And they have a program where they'll send lieutenants to the Kennedy School at Harvard. And I thought, well, I'm a state school person. A chance to go to Harvard seems like a cool thing. And I applied and surprisingly got admitted. And I ran into someone who flew the same airplanes that I did. And he said, well, you know, you really don't want to go to the Kennedy School. You want to go to the business school. And I'm like, he's like, you have many more options. I'm like, OK, well, seems reasonable. And I thought, well, if, if he could get in, maybe I can get in too. So I applied and, and got accepted to the business school. And uh, it really changed my life. Um, but I never would have considered entrepreneurship. It wasn't even in the kind of lexicon of my life. Um, but Dan Bricklin, the founder of VisiCal, came to class one day and talked about his journey building things, and it really struck me that that was my calling. So um, almost every stage of my life, I've been surprised at the transition. It was nothing in the plan. Wasn't even, I hadn't even considered it. Well, and you mentioned that you didn't pick up a camera again until kind of after that, and there was no photography as part of your Navy career. But I... I a real regret of mine, by I, the way. I, can't help but think that the kind of the adventure side of all of this got a little bit started. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you might you might be angling on one point, which is, is this about photography? I don't actually think this is about photography. I think this is about a curiosity in the world and the photographic life. Photography is a byproduct. So I think that moving around a lot with my family, traveling around the world, um, that coded me as, as a child to want more of that, and I can't get enough of it. I'm happiest, you know, being someplace different where every moment is a new piece of information for me. And the, 
I think everyone's probably wondering, you know, like you said, uh, to make sure that you always say yes to adventure, but there's, you know, you also have to be asked to adventures yeah. like these. Most of these are invite type places. How do they, how do they find, I suspect with your photography, they're, they're kind of finding you at this point. Um, but are there ones that you seek out? And is there, what's, your, what's your algorithm for finding these? That's a good question. Well, in the beginning, it, it started with me signing up for trips. If it sounded like an interesting trip, like to go to Antarctica, and I went to Antarctica on a cruise boat. I've done it five times. And, you know, although I'm talking about going to the South Pole, I still recommend everyone here to do that. It's the only trip I've been on where people cry at the end of the trip. And um, the photography was pretty good, and people noticed the photography, and some people would say, hey, do you want to go on this trip, or would you shoot for us? And so that's happened more and more. But if I were to be um, self-critical, um, I don't, Maybe it's because I, I ran a company before. I, d I don't like to ask photo editors for um, assignments. I like them to come to me. And you know, I probably am missing out on some opportunities because I, you know, all good photographers and many good photographers really work hard for those assignments. But I've been fortunate. Some good ones have come along. You invited me on one up to the Bay Bridge. And uh, you know, that was an adventure. I, I don't love, although you might be surprised, I don't love heights. Yeah, yeah, this was a really interesting thing. I invited him to walk up the cables of the, on the Golden Gate Bridge with the Bay Lights folks, thinking, like, after seeing all of his photographs, going, well, this guy's got this no problem. And he gets there that morning, he's like, by the way, I'm super afraid of heights. It's like, <laughs> we're about to walk the cables of the Bay Bridge. How many, people, <laughs> how many people would walk the cables of the Bay Bridge, no problem? That's about a third. Okay, let's have... You know, it turned out to be, you know, this is the say yes to adventure, because I really don't like... I mean, I flew to the Navy, I've been a bunch of places, but I really just don't like heights, and... You know, the Bay Bridge cable is a cable where if you fall, you'll be dangling there in front of, you know, all of this traffic. And, and uh, you know, I thought about it, and, you know, Sophia and I talked about it a little bit. And, and uh, you know, you got to say yes. you got to say yes to all of these adventures, and I'm so glad he did. You know, the quickest way to get over your fear of heights is climbing the cables of the Bay Bridge. <laughs> so... Dude, it's fan. actually kind of the scariest part is climbing onto the cable at the very beginning by the roadway to me. Okay, well, but, that's scary part number one. Scary part number two is when you're at the top and it's like really steep and the guy's trying to hook his little hook onto your... Right, right, right. And he kept missing and I was like falling. <laughs> and I, I'm like, come on. I have a video of this you may not yeah. want to well, see. Well, I, th I thought it was very interesting how you said yes to it immediately. But then, you know, the morning of, it, you actually admitted your fears um, and... So, but still, vulnerability is so. all the rage right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and things like, I mean, getting onto the U2, did that be, was that because of your history? I mean, I guess we haven't really talked about it. One of the companies you started was military.com. You had a military history and you were moving into entrepreneurship, and that seemed like a crossroads. But then you also had been um, not a pilot, but a navigator with the Navy. Was that all fitting into all of that? It is was. That how that I mean, it's, um, it's a really special thing to be asked to go up in a U2. And, um, I mean, the technical reason I went up as a journalist, but I was asked to do it. You know, I actually gave a talk, a leadership talk to the military. Military.com was really early in, with the internet and social media and the military. And I was giving this talk to a bunch of generals, and one of them came up to me and he said, well, if you come to my base at Beale, I'll, I'll get you up in a U2. And I, I thought he was kidding. I mean, I didn't realize the U2 was still flying. And I had that great moment. Nice. But it's kind of a sad moment a little bit because, you know, do you ever have these experiences where you feel, boy, I'm never going to get to do anything like this again. I felt great when I saw the Tesla in space. I thought, okay, well, I'm, maybe there's a chance in my life that I'll get to go back up. And I also want to touch base on this, um, this thing where you seem, to, you seem to turn the camera in the opposite direction in a way of the, the postcard image to see the reaction that other people are having. Um, and to catch the moment that they're having with that. And um, 
I just wonder if you could say more about that because I think that's a that's a non-intuitive thing. Everyone's always got their picture pointed at the pyramids, um, and to to turn it away. I'll never forget when I went to see the shuttle launch. I remember the general who was in charge of the launch said, you know, don't take any videos of this. We're gonna get we got that covered here at NASA. Um, just experience it. And it, we happened to be where the families were um, of the astronauts. And I remember cheering the launch and turning around and seeing just tears streaming down yeah. all these people's faces. They were clearly having a very different launch experience than I was. And I wish now that I had captured that moment. Um, and so when you said when you talked about turning the camera around, it was you've answered your own question. I mean, it's interesting because I I don't know about all of you, but I, I am drawn to take those pictures in Bagan. I mean, they're it's just so beautiful. And you know, there's nothing wrong with taking those photographs. They're great photographs, but it will never be a special photograph. I mean, it might be special, reminds you of your memories, but the really great photographs are the other things. And you know, it's, it's not straightforward to look for those other things, but that's where all of the, the joy is. I'll tell you something else kind of personally, and that is that um, everyone can take, and there's photographers out there that take pictures way better than my photographs of like landscape and animals. And I'd rather, I'm not competing, but I'd rather take my own take on these things that are not easily comparable. It's even like my life as an investor or an or, or entrepreneur. I just never felt like, a, like I was like other entrepreneurs. I just always had, I was doing, I was like a photographer and I was doing other things. So maybe my approach to life is to not do it the way other people are doing it because I don't want to be compared to them. I, I'd like it to be more unique mm -hmm. and I know they can do better than me, so. And I mean, you mentioned early on kind of in passing um, that gear doesn't matter, yet I know you're a total gearhead. And um, you know, there, it, it doesn't matter and it does. I think it's kind of like any technical activity or sport. I just w I wonder if you can expand on your, your well, theory on, of gear not on mattering. On my shoulder, there's you know, the good devil and the angel and they're like, buy more gear. Don't buy any more gear, buy more gear. Uh, I just, I'm um, moving and I just got rid of 90% of my camera equipment. Um, it was a lot of camera equipment, <laughs> a lot. You still have more than anybody. I, I, still, no, I got rid of a lot of my camera equipment. And you know, when I came back from Antarctica, I took 40,000 photographs in January. 40, not, not counting the, the film, 40,000 digital photographs. And I was processing every day for eight hours a day for four weeks. And don't ever, ever do that. It's a giant mistake. And while I was doing that, I was going on some trips and, um, I refused to bring my real camera because I didn't want to add to that queue and I used my iPhone. It's amazing, I was able to capture good photographs and um, really good photographs. And I, you know, and I'd never done that before. I didn't really use my iPhone ever. And when people bring out their phone, I'm really kind of a little put off because I don't feel like they're taking good photographs. And what I knew intellectually, I now know emotionally, which is, if you use those techniques we talked about, which is really slowing down and making the best photograph you can, it doesn't matter the gear, right? You're right, does it matter a little bit to have a Leica? Yeah. I mean, if you're in Safari, your iPhone is useless. I mean, you can basically get like lots of specs in the distance. So in certain circumstances, the gear does matter, but for most photography, you know, Kev, I tried to give Kevin, a Kelly, or Kevin Kelly a, a camera. I'm like, Kevin, take my camera. He's like, no, I'm happy with my camera. 
Yeah, his point and shoot, which I hate. <laughs> and I should also say, Kevin is also a better photographer than me, which I also hate. But it's all love. It's all love. It's all love. <laughs> um, you guys but, actually, I mean, I think some of the moments that you capture remind me of each other. And so I think there's, uh, it's very there's a, much. There's, so. a, there's a connection. But, you know, for all of you, I mean, if you were going to have one major takeaway from today around your own photography, remember I said, you know, you're the documentarians of your own lives. When you use your iPhone or whatever you're using, don't take two seconds on the picture, take 10 seconds. Frame the picture, slow down, decide what you want, and take two pictures. And then there's a second part of that, and that is make sure you take that photo, you process it, and you store it someplace else, because I hate to tell you, and you already know this, iCloud doesn't work. You're gonna lose all of those photos eventually. You're gonna do a backup, you're gonna change phones. You have to spend the time to preserve these memories. And that's even beyond like the cloud or Google, you, you probably have to do what Kevin does and print the book. You know, eventually, if it's not on paper, it's probably in trouble. Um, but if you all take that extra second, I mean, how many photos do you need of anything? You just need one photograph. So just take a little bit of time. Look, I've been shooting for 20 years. I just learned that lesson with my phone, which is take a few more seconds. So. Nice. All right, we're gonna open it up to questions um, after this one. and. Um, the, uh, the one question that I always have when I come across you and you, you're in here or in the battery or something, and um, you seem completely unjaded by the world that you live in and always the, the happiest person in Silicon oh. Valley. And um, is, yet you, you, know, you went through a company that nearly failed that you then kind of turned around and, and all of those things. It where, was really bad. Where, where, <laughs> where does the happiness come from? Where are you finding that? Good question. Uh, it's, it's a kind of perennial question. Are we born with it or is it environmental? Um, I can't speak to the first part. I think I'm generally kind of a happy person. But you know, I, I just love people. And I, you know, I find everyone endlessly entertaining. And when I engage with people, I really want to just have a good time with them and talk to them and help them and support. And that's a mutually reinforcing kind of experience. And that's the way I live my life. And um, it's a life connected to other people, and it works for me. Nice. First question. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're going to keep going back to Antarctica forever until you pass away. What <laughs> sort of unfulfilled curiosity are you pursuing by going back over and over again? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, the extrapolation of that question is when you keep going back to the same place, you know, is it worth it? It's an expensive place to go. It's far away takes a lot of time. Um, well, you know, there's, there's two parts of this. One part is probably just the experience. I'm just very, maybe again, because of my experiences, I'm just very happy in these kind of remote places, um, a little bit alone, a little bit reflective. So I love that experience. You know, people go to the spa over and over again, you know. I, this is my spa to go to Antarctica. Um, but the thing I love most of all are the people. So I like nature, it's great. Penguins are fabulous. I could take penguin pictures all the time. But you know, what I didn't talk about was I was in a tent camp with 40 workers, and they're seasonal workers. And these people, uh, some of them have PhDs, some of them didn't go to college, but what they choose to do is spend their life in this little summer camp in this incredibly remote and hostile place. And to observe them, and you know, they work seven days a week, probably 12 hours a day, to observe them and be part of that community and photograph that community. And it is just 
fascinating for me. I just love that. And there's so much of that in remote places where people are living different lives and, and I was saying different realities. So uh, I feel like I've only scratched the surface. Think about all the weird people that work at McMurdo. You know, like there's a really cool documentaries that have been done on these people and they keep coming back and I love it. I mean, Werner Herzog did that great movie, which, what was it called? The, uh, Edge. Edge, Edge. Edge of the Edge World. Edge of the World. Yeah. Really great. So I guess it's just to tell story, more stories of the people that are there. Oh, sorry, a related question from the live stream from Carter. Um, as we're starting to lose the grand ice of the planet, uh, and these next few generations may be the last to know real glaciers or the ice cap the way we understand it now, um, what would you hope that people notice about nice ice now, the ice we have now, while there's still time? That's a good question. Um, you know, the question I often get that's sort of like that question is, what have I observed relating to climate change or, or warming? And the truth is, in the interior, not much. There's so much ice. It's so white. It's so vast. There's, you know, miles of ice. You just don't notice it. Um, at the North Pole, way more noticeable. Right? The multi-year sea ice is really thin. I, I took my jacket off at the North Pole. You keep seeing all these articles. They love, the favorite article is, you know, it's, it's warmer at the North Pole than Paris. Um, that's a place that if you don't get to soon enough, it's going to be a problem. It's a huge challenge in the North. The South is a little bit harder. Um, what's happened is the the frozen edge of Antarctica is a lot smaller than it used to be, but it's not that noticeable. And honestly, as the climate warms further, you may see even more spectacular ice because more pieces of the shelf will break off. So I think it's not going to be something that's really that observable in Antarctica, other than you may see more ice. Um, but the, in the north, it really matters. I mean, to me, the, the shoot I want to do is these great northern communities, the Inuit communities, the people in Greenland, whose life was built on the edge, right? And that's changing. And boy, that's going to be, in our lifetime, the, uh, an incredibly dramatic change. And the, I, was, um, I was also struck on a trip to Svalbard. Um, and I, I went kind of for a technical reason to see how the vault itself was built, because we're building millennial structures as well. Um, but um, I also think it's, there's something about those places that attract weird people. Hmm. Um, and you mentioned the, the ones that are, um, that are at uh, these camps, but also the ones that live perennially at the highest or lowest latitudes, um, I think are, they, they're just all characters. They're all there oh, yeah. for very strange reasons. Oh yeah, um, the most interesting people on the planet. Yeah. I mean, did you stay at Marianne's Polar Rig? At the, that um, was... I, uh, Ohm is here. We, we didn't stay there, but we went for some drinks. Right. So like this woman who just like started stacking double wides in the middle of Svalbard and became a hotel. I didn't tell That's... you um, one thing about my experience in Antarctica that was different this time that's related to Svalbard and Marianne's, and that is when I was at the camp, there were two reality television shows being filmed at the same time. The most popular reality show in Japan and one from Korea. And they're all there to like have these weird experiences and tell the story of these unusual people. And it's the same thing. Uh, BBC did one in Svalbard. It's that, you know, uh, the ice people. I don't know. They're super interesting. Um, I, I love being around them. I'm probably one of them. I, I aspire to be 
as cool and weird as these people. And some of them you see in Svalbard because you know it's seasonal work. Um, I was saying that uh, people, some people came up to me and said, well, you know, it's pretty cool. You've been to these places and you've been to Antarctica and the North Pole. And, and uh, it's very humbling. I'm looking at the tent camp in the back. I'm, it's very humbling to be there because the people you meet are way more accomplished than you are. I was saying I, I went to um, um, a talk, uh, my friend Ramsey, who's here, um, from this woman, Alison Levine, who's been, who climbed Everest twice. And, you know, she's got a book and she's on a tour and she's really inspiring. I was having lunch with three people in Antarctica, three random people. Between them, they'd summited Everest 30 times. <laughs> they don't have any book. They got, they got no TV show. And, you know, so, like, I, you know, what can I say? I, I, am, I should say ALE, this incredible company, they're the only company that can take people into the interior of Antarctica. Um, they support people like Yasu, who, who skied to the pole, um, like Robert Swan, who just, you know, with his sons, again, skied to the pole. They call people like me, or maybe some of you, who go down there that live on the ice in a tent, eating who knows what, using bags for you know what. Um, they call us soft clients. Oops, I shouldn't say that. Because we're not the tough people. The tough people are the people that do the other stuff. So right. I, I feel very humbled. I don't feel like I've done very much. Uh, I've just had been lucky enough to go to these unusual places. And the, I mean, the other thing that was curious to me about Svalbard is that what I didn't realize before going is the, the amount that the, the Arctic and I suspect the Antarctic is a politicized place, that almost all of the terrain around the Arctic is claimed by many, many countries, um, Svalbard being one of them. And have you, have some of your invites crossed over that, that you were having to negotiate those politics? Um. You were on a Russian ice, nuclear-powered icebreaker to get yeah. to Yeah, well, there, there's, a, there's a guy named Michael McDowell, and Michael McDowell is the, like, father of adventure tourism. So he created Quark. He created, uh, which is the company that rents the nuclear icebreaker that goes to Russia. He opened up the Antarctic with all the, do you remember the original ships? They were all Russian ships. Um, he dives on the Titanic. He's one of the founders of Space Adventures. Basically, if you reverse engineer his, what he's figured out, it was, it was how to get access to Russian semi-military equipment during the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's how all of these things, I mean, how, like even I went to Baikonur, I did space training, I docked in the simulator, you know, how is it possible that I could do all of these things? It's because in Russia you can pay and go to space. I mean, it's really amazing. Um, your specific question is, has it caused me some challenges? Well. Um, there's one area where it's kind of tricky, and that's in Antarctica because there's the Antarctic Treaty. And the Antarctic Treaty is a heavily negotiated document. I can't remember how many signatories, but many things are governed. Like drone, I was flying a drone. Drone usage, you know, we had the <coughs> Korean crew lost a drone in the mountain. Under Antarctic Treaty, they have, to, they have to man an expedition to recover the drone. How stupid is, I mean, to risk a lot of human lives to recover a little piece of metal didn't seem like the brightest idea to me, but this is navigating all of these geopolitical rules, and a lot of those rules weren't designed just to protect the environment, they were also designed to advantage one country or another, and those countries are actively working to do that. The Arctic is the big deal right now, and the Arctic is the big deal because of shipping and because of oil. And ladies and gentlemen, the Russians are playing varsity ball, and we're not even on the field. All of those ships are Russian <coughs> ships. I think we have two operable icebreakers. So 
Um, I went to a talk George Schultz gave in San Francisco. The chief of naval operations was there, the CEO of the Navy. Like six people showed up. It's like, you know, the former secretary of state, the head of the Navy, talking about the national security threat of the Arctic. And we're just not prepared to operate there. And it's now open to military equipment and mining and people doing lots of stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And the Russians are right there. Next question. What do you think of selfies? as an art form, as a photographic art form. I mean, your <coughs> space selfie was amazing, but it's definitely a more rarefied selfie than most people take on a daily basis. Um, boy, that's a, that's a tricky question. Uh, the selfie stick is super annoying. Can we agree that that, I don't know what it is about the selfie stick that's so annoying, but when you see one, you really feel offended. Maybe you're gonna get, I was just yeah, in no, Venice, I, I, and you're gonna get hit by I them. ride across the Golden Gate Bridge, and when the, bikes and the humans are on the same side in the morning. It's the most dangerous thing because randomly someone's going to go to the side while you're going by them at 30 miles an hour. Yeah. I don't know. So I don't really like selfie sticks, although they kind of work. I mean, I used one once and I thought, what? Well, you brought what one on our trip up the cables oh, yeah. of the Bay Bridge, uh, by the did way. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. You know, I'm in fact, busting I, ha you on I have a few photos stick. of this and they are embarrassing because I have like a GoPro and I was ready to shoot all this stuff. Um, I'm, you know, I'm okay with all kinds of photography. People are always uh, going on and about, you shouldn't take postcards or you shouldn't photograph these people or you shouldn't do selfies. You know, if it makes you feel good and it helps you document your life, that's great. Um, people's tolerance for photos of yourself over and over and over again post, I mean, some people like that, but I think that there's lower tolerance, especially on Instagram. You know, I do see people in their feed always posting photos of themselves. It's okay. Um, so I guess I, I, think it's, I think it's okay, but um, I don't know, I hope for each of you to, or to challenge each of you to try to take other photos. Although, I will say some of that is good because, you know, you're taking photos not just for yourself but for your families and for future generations. So some photos of you in these places I think are kind of a nice thing and I try to do that. I try to occasionally get a photo of me doing something interesting. Mm -hmm. Chris, um, Stuart Brand is on the live stream, says hi, and wants to ask hey, what you were talking to the generals about. You know, it's always Stuart and Kevin with these questions. I was warned that, okay. Um, so something you all don't know about me, this is the first time I've ever taken my photographs and put them together like this. It's, it's quite a daunting task to take 20 years of photography and narrow it down. It was a 10-year journey, but 20 years of photography. Um, I've given lots of talks, and usually what I talk about is um, having failed as an entrepreneur and the, the challenges that I had. And at military.com, which could be a talk for another time, you know, Ann and I, who's my co-founder of Military, um, we started this company, like, it's kind of like Facebook in 1999, and we raised a lot of money, and um, we ran out of money when the bubble burst, and I got fired as a CEO, and I swam for six months thinking about all the mistakes I made. I eventually got to come back to the company and um, to shut it down, essentially, and Ann and I were able to turn it around just at the last minute, I mean, we were really in trouble. And I learned uh, a few things that I had never learned uh, in my time in the Navy or in business school about leadership. And so what that talk was about was some of those lessons. And it was also a talk about how large bureaucratic organizations um, can innovate. And I know that's something we all talk about, but you know, in the military, my favorite people were either about to be promoted or fired <laughs> because they were challenging the system. And it's true in all of our lives. We see those people. They do things that you know, aren't what other people are doing. And sometimes it, it's, there's high friction. But 
occasionally those people do something that matters. And organizations like the military or large companies, they need to figure out how to protect some of those people. So I was talking to the generals specifically about when you, I mean, I, by the way, I was that person in the military. One of the reasons I got out, I, I just recall this now, I did, I did well in the Navy, but I was a weirdo. I wasn't like other people in the military. And I had a commanding officer that supported me and protected me and appreciated it. But I felt like at any moment, I could get a normal commanding officer that might think I was a weirdo and maybe shouldn't be in the military. So I was talking about the obligation that these generals might have to some of those people uh, that are a little different than, than other people. Yes, yeah, well, Stuart is one of the other people who started his yes, career in the I, military as well. Stuart, so. Stuart came to visit uh, us at military.com, I think in 2000 or 2001, a long time hmm. ago. Never forget it. Next question. In all your adventures uh, photographing oh, these you know, wild edges of the world, what do you regret? Besides not looking at the film on the camera of, on the projector. Um, I'll tell you one thing about my own photography. You know, on the back screens, they're playing some like uh, images of mine. And um, it's difficult for me to look at my work from more than six or seven years ago. I don't think it's very good. I mean, I think I was lucky and was able to capture some good images, but I really didn't know what I was doing as a photographer. And I took a moment to kind of acknowledge my mentor, Sam Abel, and I took a class. With, I, I mean, I've been working as a photographer for a long time, and I randomly took a class with Sam, not thinking that I needed to take any class, and it really um, transformed the way I see the world and my approach. And so what I regret is that I didn't have the skills necessary to capture those incredible moments the way I would like to. So I have hundreds of thousands of photographs that could have been a lot better. So that's my great regret. And one of the things that you, um, you ended up doing was being the Dalai Lama's photographer for his tour in the United States. Can you tell a little bit about how that came to be and what that was like? Um, Okay, well, uh, I was just his photographer for three days when he was at MIT. And it was the best and worst photographic experience of my life. And it came about by someone you know, and someone whose photograph I showed tonight, um, Tenzin. And so Tenzin runs the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics at MIT. And he spoke here a few weeks ago. He spoke here, and, and I think you guys reused that same photo that and I did. I yes. um, and I knew Tenzin from another world, just a well, who doesn't know a monk? You know, he's just a monk that I know. And um, they needed a photographer, and he asked if I would be the Dalai Lama's photographer, and it was really um, this super interesting experience. So I'll, I'll share a couple things about it. One just is about the Dalai Lama in general. You know, when you meet someone, I'm a Buddhist, and when you meet someone that you admire and respect a lot from afar, uh, it's a dangerous thing. It's risky. Right? They say, don't meet, your, you know, don't meet the rock stars you love because you might be disappointed. Well, I was this close to the Dalai Lama for three days. I was in his hotel room. I traveled around everywhere with him. I watched him very carefully. He is as good or better than you could imagine. <laughs> he cares deeply about everyone equally. Right? The people, I mean, we together and a lot of security people and some political Tibetan or political people from the Tibetan government in exile, we met lots of people. We met 
really famous rock stars, we met business people, and we also met, like there was a woman, you know, so imagine we're at the Charles Hotel, I don't know if you've ever stayed there in, in Cambridge, and you know, he's got four rooms or something, it's not like the Saudi prince where they rent the whole hotel, and so there's like 20 defense, or uh, 20 State Department security people with like guns, a bunch of monks, and this young woman walks out of her room, and there's the Dalai Lama standing there, and all of the security people, and she's just looking at him like, what is going on here? And you know, he treated her the same way he treated Sting, right? He's that guy, and it was incredible. Um, the hard part for me was, you know, it was basically like the, you wanted to have these like very quiet moments with this person you admire, but he's a super celebrity rock star, so everywhere we went, there were like throngs of people, these celebrities which were not that great. I mean, you know, my impression of that experience with some of these people was you almost felt like these people had everything in their lives but they were still unhappy and were hoping as holiness would give them something. I don't want to read too much into it. But that you could see that they wanted something. And that wasn't the pleasant experience for me. I didn't enjoy that. Um, but it was a really cool experience. And, you know, when, and when you get a photo posted to the Dalai Lama's website, you get like a million people liking it instantly. <laughs> <laughs> He's a cool guy, really a cool guy. Uh, hey guys, so first of all, yeah, I agree, Marianne's is the best place to stay in Svalbard, so everybody, TripAdvisor, go to Svalbard. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, there's but, only two places, by the way. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's the Radisson or Marianne's. So I had a question actually for both of you, and that is, you know, looking at pictures like this and the crowd here, um, I think we'd all like to have a presentation like this on the moon, and I was wondering if maybe the Long Now Foundation or somebody else would sort of take that on as a project to establish a moon base and get us up there and do selfies on the moon and what you think would be involved in exactly accomplishing that goal. Well, I'm going to solve 50% of that. I agree to be the photographer, so now you <laughs> go ahead. All right, I'll build the moon base. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. All right, are we good? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, um, I mean, Long Now's uh, foray into space so far has been um, uh, the actually the Rosetta disk, which is right behind you in that cabinet. There, uh, one of those was launched on the um, on the space mission to the comet. Um, was it? P uh, that was the original target. Then it got changed, good. Uh, but good. 67P was the one that, um, but and then it took 10 years to get there, and then it eventually they crash landed it on the comet. So now there's this uh, this funny disk with thousands of languages on it. But it's the funny thing is that it's now be made us a magnet for people who are sending weird things into space and they want to know about it, and so or they want something like all this language content to go. So we now keep getting asked this question um, for data sets and most. Recently, the uh, the company that if you that had the uh, Asimov Foundation series in the Tesla Roadster on that last launch, um, we now partnered with, and they're taking some of their content for their next mission. Um, but that's as far as we've gotten. A commitment to do it right away. Yeah, no, it's not a commitment to do it right away. We're we're working on it. Um, I think how are we doing for time? I didn't actually bring any time devices with me. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here, but I, I did want to ask one last question. Um, the there is an incredible generosity that I have encountered um, with you and your images, the way you've given images, 
Um, you take pictures and effectively release them as near as I can tell. At least you have to me. But I, what's your model? Like you, um, you said you became a, a photographer in 2008. You have this insane generosity with your work. Um, what's the how? How did you arrive at the model that you're doing? And what is there a? Do you get paid for any of it? Is there any? What is? How does that work? It's the worst business model of all time. <laughs> the worst. No. Um, well. <clears throat> Let's see, I do make a little bit of money. Um, people buy prints uh, from the website and um, some companies I can't mention have licensed libraries to use in like phones and computers. Uh, Google, if you like the Chromecast, you can see my pictures. Um, but the truth is I'm able to do this because of my life as an entrepreneur. So <clears throat> I didn't make a lot of money, but I made enough money so that I can spend time in my small place and focus on photography. And honestly, I'd rather just give you the photograph <coughs> than buy it. And um, I, don't, you know, I don't fully understand my own psychology, but um, basically I live in the world of taking photographs and giving those photographs away. I Creative Commons license almost all of my photographs. And that's the, that's the reward for me. The reward is that people are happier because I've given them an image or I've captured something that mattered in their lives. And you know, maybe in the final analysis, I'll think that I, I should have worked at the business of photography more, but I don't know what counts for me. I mean, I, I've taken portraits of so many people in this room and you know, I'd like to think that it made their lives a little bit better and that some people in the future will look at those photographs and appreciate them. Well, I think if, for somebody who believes in karma, um, you've been creating amazing karma. I want to give you a long nail challenge oh, coin for thank speaking. You. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I mean, more importantly, I, I just want to thank you for the generosity of the images that you've given to us in the world and for making our here bigger every day. So it's thank a real you honor. So much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.